0: Union would have to pay a fine of more than $200,000 for every day that the strike continued. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning, welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm Brian Curtis. Well, a big show this morning, five guests as we kick off the new week. Among the areas, we'll be covering exports pick up in China, but what happened to imports and what does that mean? Will financial reform in China go the way of political reform after 1989? Leave that to you to uh, to decide. And we'll also be looking at the latest trends in labor activism in China. More managers have been getting involved. We break down the latest U.S. job numbers in a look at the U.S. economy. We'll be speaking with Barry Wood, our international economics correspondent, in just a moment. And we'll look and hear about how the IMF Managing Director Christine Lagarde says that they got it wrong on the U.K. economy. We'll be looking through the prism of strong property in London and how the U.K. may have the highest growth of any G7 nation this year. Our guests on the program this morning include Barry Wood, as I mentioned, John Foley, Reuters Breaking Views up in Beijing, Jonathan Isaacs from Baker & McKenzie, who will be with us in our studios here, Richard Matheson, Chairman and Managing Director at Tsai Capital, if that's the way it's pronounced, and Keith Stuckins. co-director also at uh, Tsai Capital. Well, we'll get to um, uh, the uh, numbers here in Asia for you, the markets and, and how they're moving. Futures have been higher all morning on the better mainland export numbers and on the U.S. Jobs Report. Now we see the Nikkei up 123 points. This is the cash market now, having just opened up 123 at 15,200. And uh, in Seoul, the Kospi has moved up 11 points to 2007. Dollar Yen, 102.64. That's the dollar little stronger against the yen, weaker yen, good for the equity market up there. And the euro versus the dollar is now 1.3648. Okay, we get started first with a look at the jobs numbers and the health of the U.S. economy.
1: A solid jobs report overall. is good to see a monthly number in excess of the 12-month average in terms of job creation. Mm-hmm. And finally, we're back over the peak
0: of January 2009 in terms of how many people were employed. That's Mohammed El-Aryan, advisor to Allianz, non-farm payrolls. If you missed this uh, late Friday night at our time, up 217,000 in terms of new jobs, net new jobs created in May. That was slightly above the 215,000 that economists were expecting. The unemployment rate was unchanged at 6.3%. That was actually a little better than the 6.4% consensus. A short montage here of reactions the second takeaway is there are still some
1: concerns long-term unemployment is too high the participation rate is not budging from multi-decade lows and earnings growth is anemic Uh,
2: this shows the economy is continuing to heal uh, sure, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. Uh, there are longstanding problems that even preceded the recession that need to be addressed. Right. Uh, but this shows that the expansion is continuing, maybe even gathering a little bit of steam.
1: This morning we saw a really solid jobs report, but the economy is really still stuck in second gear. In some ways, we really have gotten to the end of the cyclical recovery, or maybe we've we've um, made good progress on the cyclical side. So you see people going back to work in Main Street businesses and that was a pretty slow process, but we're in a solid place. The question is how do we get the structural recovery?
0: So that's Karen Mills from the Harvard Business School. Before that former Obama administration economic advisor Alan Krueger and before that again Mohammed L. Arian. And also this one from Rick Ryder at BlackRock. pretty solid report and you're running at a three-month average of payroll of over 230,000. so you have the window where the fed can
3: start to move and start to start to snug rates higher
0: why do we care about uh, what's happening with the u.s economy because we sell a lot into that economy so we say good morning now to barry wood our international economics correspondent barry good day to you
1: good day to I am a buyer of Chinese goods, but not the kind of uh, volume that you're looking for.
0: Yeah. Well, that last comment, too, from Rick Ryder, um, <laughs> he's talking there about uh, higher rates. Uh, I, you know, that seems strange. Uh, maybe sometime. Uh, uh, just wondering what you think about that. Ben Bernanke, uh, these, there were reports that came out last week that, saying that around the uh, speaking circuit, that he was saying that we wouldn't see rates at 4% in his lifetime.
1: Wow. I didn't uh, hear that, Brian. That's uh, quite a statement. I mean, wow. Ben Bernanke is not that old. I think he's still in his uh, late 50s. So, uh, 60. He's 60. He's <laughs> 60. Uh,
0: yeah, it's an amazing comment. But anyway, yeah, let's get to the idea of, uh, of rates and whether or not uh, the jobs report changes that equation at all.
1: Well, I think that uh, rates are going to go up, but the question is when? And I think the consensus now is that they're not going to go up at all during the course of 2014. And that's quite a change from what we were saying three, four months ago, when it was in, you know, pretty solid expectation that rates would begin to rise by October. So it's very interesting. This is a low-rate environment. This is still an emergency economy. Rates are at the bottom in Europe, and they're near the bottom in the States. And you've got Federal Reserve officials being very clear that they're tightening by doing away with taking away the punch bowl, so to speak, with diminishing QE. But there's not going to be any rise in short-term rates or long-term rates, at least in the foreseeable future.
0: People are trying to figure out what is the natural, neutral, long-term unemployment rate because that might give you an idea once they make that determination when the Fed might feel confident to, to move higher on rates. Um, some people think now it's rather than 4.5% that we used to talk about, that it's more like 55 to 6%. we are at 63 three. What do you think?
1: Well, I think yeah, we've got a very distorted economy still and you've got people who have dropped out because they're simply discouraged and then you've got this uh, open immigration that comes in that keeps wages very low at the bottom so you've got discouraged workers there too then you've got the people who are coming back into the uh job market because they're retired they don't have enough to get by as you and i have discussed uh, many times brian i mean things are tough here for the average american family the middle class is shrinking, and their wages are not rising and haven't been rising. So what is the natural rate of unemployment? I'm not sure. It's certainly more than 4.5%, and it's probably more like 55 or even 6.5%. I would think, while we're not seeing any pressure, any stress in the labor market that gives upward pressure on wages, we must be getting somewhat close to it. But then again, the, the, the labor force is so volatile.
0: There was another interesting report out last week, which was the household wealth report, uh, that it was up $1.6 trillion. Now, if you are a little bit of an optimist, you could say that uh, the... Average Joe doesn't really benefit from you know the 30 to 32 percent gain in stocks last year, but they really do benefit from housing prices going up. And, that, and that's probably a big chunk of why that household health was up a lot. People are feeling better because they see that their wealth is getting better
1: no doubt about that. I mean, you look at those statistics that say that 25 percent of American families are still underwater on their mortgage. That's a pretty shocking thing, because those people feel that they cannot really move, that they're trapped. So the fact that uh, we are now seeing wealth creation as a result of rising house prices, this is great news. And I think that's why the auto market is doing well. You know, we've got an average age of automobiles now of 11 years. That's something like a 20- or 30-year high. A lot of people need to trade cars. They may go up to a used car, but new car sales are are, are getting back to pre-recession levels. So there are things happening in the market that I think augur well for the future.
0: We have to truncate things a little bit this morning because we've got five guests on the program, which is a a big bulky Monday morning show, which is great. But it means that I can't talk to you as much about the ECB as I wanted. Uh, uh, Seemed like a bold move, but now some of the analysis that maybe it's a little bit more tepid. Uh, In 20 seconds, what did you think of the ECB negative interest rate move?
1: Oh, I think it's brilliant. I think Mario Draghi is really a magician. He is walking the fine line between german opposition and pressure from the south europeans to do more he said we're not done yet he is holding his cards. this is as good as what he did in the summer of 2012 when he said that there was that they would do all that it was needed
0: all right barry thanks very much for joining us here as usual on a monday morning So how fast was that? Holding out for a hero, Barry's interpretation there that Mario Draghi uh, is approaching the status of uh, one of the uh, most influential uh, central bankers in the world and maybe right now getting the best press. Well, China's exports rose more than analysts estimated in May. Overseas shipments up 7% from a year ago. That was higher than the 6.7% expected. But imports were down 1.6%, something not forecast by any of the 42 economists pulled by Bloomberg. So we wanted to look at uh, financial reform, but we need to talk a little bit about the economy. We say good morning to John Foley, Reuters Breaking Views. John, good morning. Good morning, Brian. Yeah, you know, the original idea was financial reform and whether or not it's disappointing, whether it goes the same way as political reform. But let's talk for just a minute about, um, about the export numbers. They were better than expected. Is it anything to get excited about?
3: Um, Not really is the answer. They are better than expected. 7% is a little bit higher than the 6.6% that people were expecting. Imports, of course, disappointed they were down 1.6% year on year. But so much of the trade data has been distorted by funny comings and goings of fake imports and exports over the last year at least as people try and play the currency, the undervalued currency. So it's now increasingly hard to tell what's really going on with underlying demand, which is why we're paying less attention at the moment to these trade figures.
0: On financial reform, uh, do you expect that the the weaker trend, now we saw a pickup in the UN late last week, uh, but the trend of late has been weaker. That seems to support exports. And it seems like going back away from financial reform, what do you think?
3: Well, look, if financial reform is so complicated, every change the kind of reform and we're seeing some, some quite significant changes to the system in terms of the growth of things like online investment products people are getting more choices about where to put their money but a big part of reform is opening up the market so that people can take money relatively freely across the border and you can't do that while the currency is still suppressed and there is every sign that the central bank is still meddling actively in the currency so we're still a long way from the kind of reform that would really allow capital to flow from where, it's, from where it is to where it's needed fairly.
0: People are- going to extraordinary uh, efforts and extent to get money out of out of China. Um, you don't really hear that many stories about capital flight, but just so that they have more freedom, like for instance people here in Hong Kong or in Macau, they'll, they'll buy a luxury bag or some sort of item with their credit card and then they'll sell it right back to the shop and get cash, uh, preferably in Hong Kong dollars, and then they can do what they want with it because Hong Kong dollars are freely tradable. Um, is, is, this, you know, is, is this a big thing or is it sort of small small in the big picture. It's much-
3: than the, the funny business that's been going on with exports and imports. But yeah, of course, it's a big thing because it means that the window is open. People are actively getting money across when they shouldn't. And one of the things that we wrote here, here at Reuters about was the union pay uh, loophole where people could use their union pay cards and, and basically get money out over the border in almost unlimited quantities. So it's not big enough to cause huge capital leakage from
0: the system, but it shows that where people have an opportunity to get money out, that's exactly what they're doing. And that should worry China's leaders. What about the shadow banking? What we just talked about, that characterization is almost like a shadow banking thing. Uh, what about the more traditional, if you can call it, shadow banking industry in China? People getting a lot more than the 3% that the banks offer. You know, Is it at the dangerous level or is it being peeled back?
3: Well, uh, both, really. On one level, it's kind of healthy because... China's depositors have been getting less than they deserve for decades. Uh, deposit rates have been set too low. So people have been trying to find a return that gives them something more like what they need in order to can make a reasonable investment return. Um, Property has been a great source of those returns, and that's obviously very dangerous because that's pushed prices up to very high levels in some cities. Shadow banking has given depositors a taste of what it means to get four, five, six percent on your money instead of naught to three percent. In that sense, it's good. But the speed with which it's grown and the recklessness with which some of these lenders have made loans means that it has to be watched very closely, and the government is worried that some of these loans will come unstuck and they won't be able to control the process that happens afterwards because it's outside of the state controlled banking
0: system. What sort of numbers are we talking? About in terms of percentages that are outside uh, the banking system?
3: It depends on who you ask because there are so many broad definitions. Um, We're looking at, in some cases, about uh, up to two thirds of GDP uh, in shadow banking. That's a very broad definition, which includes all kinds of things outside of regular bank loans. But the reality is that no one really knows because these things aren't being recorded properly, and often a loan will be made to person A who then lends it to person B creating these very long in your blog credit
0: chains. in your blog last week you cited uh Barclays saying 68 percent of of gdp in 2013 was outside the official banking system and that, that that's right
3: had, yeah. had grown almost and that's a very broad
0: definition but if it, if it and you also cited that they said that it grew a third in the last year that doesn't seem like you know it's something that's being brought back under control it's
3: being brought back under control yet because it's serving a fairly useful purpose because it's getting money to where it's needed and it's propping up a lot of investment, particularly in the real estate sector. So when so you say get, you really get, getting, it down,
0: getting where it's needed, you mean smaller sized companies that can't get bank loans because they're ignored by the big state-owned banks?
3: Precisely. One of the main problems with reform is that you need to take the state out of the banking system a bit more. At the moment, state banks often lend to state-owned companies, and that means that everyone else has to either go begging or try and find these alternative channels like the shadow banking system. John, so that thanks- may be serving a useful purpose, but in an uncontrolled way.
0: Okay. it's very interesting. Uh, we'll get more from you, and we'll be watching your blog. Uh, John, thank you very much for joining us here on Money for Nothing. Uh, John Foley, Reuters Breaking Views, and he has a blog on, uh, well, on business in China as he's based in Beijing. You no, much has been made of late about new trends in labor activism in China. Notably, we've seen a lot of reports uh, indicating that managers are getting much more involved in organizing strikes and other interventions uh, in, uh, in labor disputes. And we thought we'd do a segment about new trends in labor activism in China. And we welcome Jonathan Isaacs, uh, lawyer and partner at Baker and McKenzie. Uh, Jonathan, good morning. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's good to have you in our studios here in Central. Um, we've, we've seen reports about um, all of these um, activist moves in IBM and Yuyun, other companies. Uh, and one of those, again, as you mentioned, uh, managers getting more involved and actually stoking um, an interest in workers to, to, to play a more uh, aggressive or assertive role. Um, is,
4: is, that, is that good news? Uh, no, it's quite bad news for overseas management. It means that any time they want to implement any type of major restructuring in China or engage in an M&A transaction that involves their China operations, they have to be very wary about the reaction of local management. If the local management is not on board, with the overseas head office's plans, they can cause a lot of trouble for the overseas management and make the transaction or the restructuring much more difficult. So it's more difficult for the corporates, but is it proving to be a lot better for the workers? In some cases, yes, local management is able to get more money for the workers. For example, if there's a layoff plan, they can squeeze more money out of overseas management on behalf of the workers. But this isn't necessarily always the case. Sometimes local management will just use labor activism in a way to put pressure on overseas management so they can get a better deal for themselves and they're not really in it for the workers.
0: But with growth being so... Slow
4: in the West, uh, there
0: has been a lot of squeezing, uh, and with with um, uh, wages running at sort of fifteen to twenty percent per year, you know this does make it difficult for the for the corporates operating there. And you know, is it becoming more and more difficult to even find
4: workers in certain provinces? Yes, particularly in Guangdong province, there having more and more difficulty finding workers willing to work at low wage rates, which are necessary to make any sort of profit, particularly in the low-end manufacturing sector. In other parts of China, we're not seeing the same extent of the labor squeeze. For example, Shanghai or the interior of China, more and more companies are moving out there because workers are more willing to stay at home where the prices are lower and work for slightly lower wages over there. Are workers agitating for higher wages or for better conditions or for
0: some of these other things like uh, better severance treatment and, and those types of uh, remuneration?
4: Uh, for all of these things. Um, in each situation... The reason for the strike has been different. Sometimes they're simply striking for higher wages. They think the cost of living is rising dramatically and wages are not keeping up. In other cases, if there's, being, if there's a major restructuring and they are being laid off, they want a higher severance package. Or another common reason is simple legal noncompliance. For example, in Yuyuan. The case was alleged underpayment of social insurance contributions. So there are a variety of reasons for why these strikes are happening right now. Isn't it pretty standard in China to get one month for each year of service? That's the legally required minimum for severance in certain so circumstances. So they're agitating for more than They want much more than that. And in certain cases, even when employees are not entitled to any severance at all under the law, they demand severance. For example, if a company is acquiring the equity in another company, Nothing changes on the ground. Their employment continues as before. There's no termination. But what we're seeing increasingly uh, happening is that even in those situations where there's no legal basis for severance, the workers are demanding severance. Their position is we believe that the owners are essentially our employers, and if they are leaving and we're getting a new employer, we want to be paid out our prior years of service. Do you think that this trend is leading more companies to move out of China? Uh, some we 've se- seen uh, media reports where some uh, the CEOs of some companies have indicated that if labor costs keep rising, we are going to move out of china we haven 't seen a large scale exit yet. Except in the low-end manufacturing sector, in that particular sector, because margin, the margins are so slow, we're starting to see them either move to the interior of China or move to other countries. But in higher-end sectors where there isn't as much wage pressure, we don't see this uh, large-scale ex- exiting from China.
0: Overall, are we seeing more strikes than we did before, or is it just uh, being more
4: widely reported? We are seeing more strikes than before, according to one labor rights group uh, who's been tracking the number of strikes. There's been, for example, within the first quarter of this year, a 30 percent increase over the number of strikes from last year. So we are seeing an increase in the number of strikes and the willingness of workers to actually go on strike uh, in any type of situation. Okay, Jonathan,
0: thank you very much for being with us here on Money for Nothing. Thank you. Jonathan Isaacs, speaker in (laughs) McKinsey. Well, the IMF underestimated the strength of the U.K. economy when it was warning in the past about the government's austerity program. That's the latest from Managing Director Christine Lagarde. She told the BBC yesterday, well, we got it wrong. We acknowledge it. Clearly, the confidence building that has resulted from the economic policies adopted by the government has surprised many of us. She did repeat, though, that she thinks the strength of the U.K. housing market is a threat. But she said the rise in housing was multifaceted rather than an outright boom. We have some property folks from uh, London or from the U.K. in our studios with us this morning. Richard Matheson, chairman and managing director at Tsai Capital. And Keith Stuckins, a co-director for the same firm. Good morning. Good it's, morning, it's, Brian. It's, Good spelled, morning. it's spelled Kai, but are you using the uh, pinion uh, C for Tsai?
5: No, we're using Kai.
0: Okay, well, I got that wrong, <laughs> then. So you take your guesses here on the program. Anyway, um, yeah, I... I you know, we, lots of people coming into town, they want to meet the high net worth individuals, they want to flog property. So, yeah, we get it. But we're, we wanted to ask you a little bit about um, the U.K. housing market and the fact that, um, you know, you still hear these these uh, warnings about it, that it's, it's like Hong Kong. It's, it's just astronomically high. Is that true?
5: Absolutely right. And uh, it has to be of, uh, of real concern when uh, 80% of uh, homeowners in most London boroughs could not today afford to buy the property in which
0: they're living. So you admit that it's high, and yet you're here to sell property to wealthy individuals. Why?
5: Absolutely right. Uh, the problem is, uh, is the, the disparity between supply and demand.
0: The disparity between supply and demand, uh, you mean the, the, that's not the reason you're here looking for um, buyers, but it, it's just a fact of why prices have moved up.
5: Absolutely. I mean, a, it is a fact of life that uh, uh, where demand exceeds supply, then prices have only one uh, one direction to move in.
0: And, and so, you know, when you look at mainlanders and Hong Kong buyers, uh, are they changing their habits in any way? Or are they still flocking to um, make purchases in London and elsewhere in the UK.
5: Oh, it is very London-centric, is. although of late we have been uh, encouraging some of our existing clients to perhaps, if you like, spread the bet and, uh, and, and look at investing in uh, spa
0: towns and university towns throughout the UK. And uh, Keith, who could bring you in too, is—is um, is this um, being met with, uh, you know, with approval?
2: Are are mainlanders looking to branch out a little bit and get outside London, or do they still want to stick with London? I think, Brian, to be honest with you, yeah, um, whilst there is. And undoubtedly, um, more capital growth to come from London properties. Um, the entry level now in, in most uh, key areas is so high that um, the yields that you can actually generate from uh, a rental income aren't as fantastic or, or as uh, advantageous or attractive as they could be. Um, Whereas other provincial markets, as, as Richard kind of referred to, such as spa towns, um, the, the entry level is a lot lower. So where it may cost you, you know, uh, a certain amount like £700,000 to buy one unit in London, you could buy two units in a provincial location and also achieve um, as good or, if not, a better yield as well. The capi-
0: is, is, it, is it oversimplification to say for those buyers who are looking more for yield – Um, that they would look outside London? If they're looking more for capital appreciation and just stability, they would buy in London?
2: Not necessarily. I mean, I think there are uh, many um, potential... Uh, growth areas within the UK Um, and the idea is or or the the key is to try and identify the new um, area where you are going to have the the sustained capital growth. I mean places like Westminster and and some of the the bigger uh, properties or areas in in London um, you've already seen a large growth uh, potential there. So you, you're looking for like the new areas where there's um, a lot of investment going in, where you've got the new uh, cross-rail links, um, transport infrastructure to support it. Uh, one particular area would obviously be... Um, in East London, there's been a lot of development, particularly um, post-Olympics and, uh, and pre-Olympics as well. But certain areas uh, around uh, the further east, i.e. Canningtown and Victoria Albert docks, which historically haven't really been um uh they've been kind of run down areas to a certain extent but there's a lot of investment there's a two billion pound regeneration project ongoing down there yeah. and so you are going to see um you know real sustained capital growth um and another area of of, uh, of of wise investment i should assume so richard you're in town to launch
0: something what are you launching it's uh, just
2: making our clients aware
5: of Chi uh, Capital and what Chi Capital can do for them. Uh, we provide a bespoke service and uh, take the, the requirements of uh, the instructions of our clients and then go and source the properties to match. And are you in any way able to help uh, mainlanders get money out of China? Well, it's interesting you should mention that, Brian, because... Uh, <laughs> um, Cryptocurrency is uh, is is something that, uh, that that people talk more and more Come about. Come on, have you days. have you
0: sold have you sold a house and had anybody accept Bitcoin? Yes, you have. Yeah. Wow. Kudos. In fact, we've
5: we've we've completed on one transaction, and we have another
0: uh, another sale going through at the moment. Interesting. Okay. Well, we're out of time, unfortunately. Uh, but it's interesting to hear. Um, such candor from you guys. Uh, enjoyed the conversation. Thanks very much. Good luck Thanks, on your friend. trip here in Hong Kong. Richard Matheson, chairman and managing director of Kai Capital, and Keith Stuckins, co-director of Kai Capital as well. They'll probably find that a lot of mainlanders will think that that means Tsai Capital. Markets are higher this morning. We see gains about two-thirds of 1% uh, in the markets that are open. Weather-wise today, thundery showers associated with a trough of low pressure. Unfortunately, means some showers and thunderstorms today and mainly cloudy skies. The outlook for the next couple of days, showers. Free. The latest news summary with Janice Wong. Gunmen in Pakistan have attacked the airport in a bigger city, Karachi, killing at least 11 people. Six of the gunmen have also been shot dead. Many more are wounded. The attackers hurled grenades and fired automatic weapons at security guards. The BBC's Shahzeb Jalani sent this report from Islamabad. The attack took place a little before midnight local time. An eyewitness said the gunmen were heavily armed. They stormed the airport from the old terminal building, opened fire and threw grenades killing airport security personnel. Some reports suggest an aircraft may have been damaged. Fire and smoke can be seen rising from the airport. Flight operations have been suspended until further notice and all incoming flights are being diverted to other cities. Pakistan army commandos have arrived to try to regain the control of the airport. A suicide attack on Pakistan's border with Iran has left at least 20